0: Listening to the Getting Smart podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Caroline, and today we're talking with Richard Barth. After helping Teach for America get to a good start, Richard Barth married the founder and CEO, Wendy Kopp. Richard went to work for a school developer, and in 2005, he joined a foundation supporting a fledgling charter school network called KIPP. Richard has facilitated the growth from 40 schools to 224 schools, serving almost 100,000 students nationwide. Along the way, Richard and the KIPP team have learned a lot about getting young people into and through college. They learned about the importance of helping students leave high school with a passion, purpose, and a plan. Listen as Richard speaks to Tom about lessons learned while leading KIPP.
1: Hey, Richard Barth, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Glad to be here. It's uh, been too long since we've had Mexican food together in uh, New York City. Let's do it again, and and, and
2: glad for this to be our first stop.
1: Yeah, let's do that. So you graduated from Harvard in 89, and you joined a startup called Teach for America. Um, Why did you join that startup, and what did you do?
2: So um, I joined Teach for America. Uh, you know, I had done a lot of stuff in college uh, working with kids. And so graduate, I knew that's what I wanted to keep doing. Uh, true story, um, I was traveling, and my mother uh, sent me a news clip about someone starting this thing called Teach for America. This was in the fall of 89. And uh, when I came back to New York City, uh, or New York, I interviewed um, at Teach for America, and uh, they hired me as one of the first employees, and we went out and, uh, in donated rental cars, traveled across the country recruiting then college seniors to apply to an organization that truly did not yet exist.
1: And you found the the, uh, the founder quite compelling. I, you know, obviously the
2: long story short, we are now married and we have four children. So, uh, but that was a long, that was the last thing on my mind uh, coming right out of school. And, and you know, we, we didn't um, actually start dating until, I guess, six or seven years later, but uh, she, you know, she was compelling. And I remember vividly, you know, I think the two biggest takeaways, one was people kept telling her, hey, just do teach for Georgia or teach for Ohio or teach for Illinois, don't, don't start big. And she would tell them, well, This issue we're tackling is a national issue. This isn't just a a state or city issue, and we need to call on our nations, some of our nation's most talented seniors, um, to uh, be a part of uh, the work. And she just stuck to her guns, and she was right to do it. Uh, We donated, we drove in these donated rental cars, and I remember we headed out in January of '90, and by March, 2,500 seniors from across the country had applied to be in the first core, and just to put it in perspective when they would ask us questions things like well where will we teach we would tell them we don't know and they would say how will we be trained and we said we're we're working on that and they said how much will we be paid and we said uh we'll, you'll be paid by a school district and uh in spite of all that in spite of it being a moment where everyone said it was the me generation again 2500 seniors with those mostly being the answers to their top questions chose to apply and we accepted 500 to be in that first the first core
1: it's such a great story, and Richard, I had forgotten completely that um, that, that you were in that early uh, group at at TFA. We we had such a great uh, chat with um, the the CEO um, Elisa villanueva Beard recently, and and now there's almost sixty thousand alumni. Uh, most of them uh, work in education. Uh, or in uh, serving kids serving institutions and w- when you look around the country most a very high percentage of uh, education organizations are led by uh, Teach for America alums the the, the leadership al- alumni uh, is is just uh, it's uh, it's extraordinary in terms of the the contribution to the the sector. So you've got to be really proud about that in a number of respects.
2: It's it's an incredible story, and and Elisa is just a phenomenal CEO. Uh, But when you go back to those earliest days, building Teach America, we think two things will happen. One, we'll have these uh, awesome young people making a big difference in the lives of kids. And second, um, they will become some of the most forceful advocates for kids in the country by virtue of this experience. No one believed that second... Hypothesis. No one believed it. Everyone said, "Well, maybe they'll have a good year, but they won't stay involved." It was the it was the hardest case uh, for us to make and for, for Wendy to make. And now, when people think of Teach for America, my experience almost is to think about is actually the alums and what they've done. And if you think about the high performing charter sector, of which you know we're we're a part, uh, it just yeah. you know it would not exist if not for that alumni base, let alone the state soups and the district suits. It's and the advocates. It's uh, it's really been amazing to watch.
1: Richard, you uh, joined the KIPP Foundation in in two thousand five. That was uh, about a decade after it had been launched in in Houston. Maybe you could recount for us the the KIPP origin story.
2: Yeah, KIPP was founded by Dave Levin and Mike Feinberg in you know nineteen ninety four, and um, you know it, the origins. It is a classic origin story. They were both Teach for America uh, core members, teaching in Houston, Texas, and. Um, They had one of those experiences where they looked at how things were going for uh, middle school students they taught in Houston, and they said, you know, this just doesn't make sense. Like, um, this is the the definition of, you know, banging your head against the wall because um, these were awesome kids, and they realized they could be doing so much more than was being asked of them um, if you were willing to reinvent the way you did school. And so they created a program, the Knowledge is Power program, and they worked uh, with 47 uh, fifth graders. And these are kids who at the beginning of the year were scoring in the twenties and thirties on the Texas assessment. And at the end of the year were scoring in the eighties. And, uh, they realized, wow, you really could do something very different, uh, beginning at the core with just very clear high expectations of what they knew the kids could achieve. Um, but they realized very quickly after that, that fifth grade would not be enough. And they decided they needed to make this a, a full middle school, not just a fifth grade program. And, uh, Dave returned to New York City, where he grew up, and opened the first Skip School in the Bronx. And Mike and in Houston opened our first Skip School in Houston. And uh, over the next, you know, five years, all they did was focus on trying to build two fantastic schools that were siblings. They weren't, you know, they were they were you know schools that were close in in uh, uh, many things, but you know, unique in in being led by Mike and Dave. And in in uh, five or six years later, they ran into Don and Doris Fisher, um, who had built the Gap uh, company and who were looking to make a big difference. And uh, they asked uh, Mike and Dave, hey, would you ever think about growing this? And that led to the creation of the KIPP Foundation um, uh, to to build a national network of KIPP schools um, preparing young people uh, for success in life. And the rest, you know, uh, today, here we are um, 18 years later, and we have... 224 schools uh, educating just shy of 100,000 children every day. And we have uh, 12,000 plus alums in college as we speak.
1: So I think um, uh, we started the uh, Gates Foundation in 1999. I'm not sure when the first grant to KIPP was. It could have been after Jim uh, Shelton joined us in maybe 2002 um, at at that time, it was just be, it was becoming a national network, but it was a, a it was early days. It was a group of schools around a design principle. Maybe you could w- walk us through how you see ways in which the organization has matured from that relatively loose network of schools around a set of design principles to to what it is today.
2: Sure. Uh, when I joined uh, in two thousand five from the beginning we set up ourselves to equip young people to lead fulfilled lives like we had that big hairy ambition audacious goal from the beginning nothing less and uh you know we had those two schools and mike and dave had the idea like let's find awesome people to open new kip schools as you said along a set of you know pretty basic principles and then prepare them for a year and let them go off open schools and that's what they did for their first, you know, four years. And when I arrived, they'd accomplished something remarkable. So I always tell people, like I, I was blown away when they first started. Um, you know, they started calling me, saying, "Hey, would you be interested in in coming here?" And what I saw were, you know, roughly forty schools producing game changing experiences for their kids. And I saw for the first time in my life what you could do. Uh, when you started with that audacious goal, and then you just didn't, like, you weren't negotiating against it. You were just saying, what will it take to accomplish that? There was no downward negotiation. So much of my life had been about, okay, well, start with a modest incremental goal, and then let's negotiate downward from there. Like, that's what happened so much for kids growing up um, in communities across the country. People start with a modest goal and then say, well, we can't do all the things it would take to achieve that. Well, not not with not with GIP. What um, what I also saw, so I saw 40 amazing school leaders, uh, they were independent, they were doing it all on their own. And uh, I remember being in a room with them my first couple months. And I also recognized that, you know, what got us to that point wouldn't get us to the next place. First and foremost, like with these amazing leaders, but um, it was tiring and there was no infrastructure speak of to support them. So our founding school leaders on whose uh, shoulders we all stand were the school developers. They did real estate, they did politics, they did Teacher recruitment, student recruitment.
1: I think people like um, Matt Candler were in that in that early group. Is that right? Correct.
2: He was he was one of the first yeah. people working with them, and so these these people were doing everything. And I said, you know what? We can help them uh, do do this and be um, probably a little more sustainable as leaders. And so we created Kip Regions. That was really the first thing.
1: When was that? Like two thousand six or seven? This is
2: this is two thousand five to two thousand eight. From 2006, right, by 2006 to 2008, maybe 2009, we were working to say um, we should be part of a KIPP region where school leaders can count on some other folks to handle everything from real estate to finance to to potentially, you know, uh, community organizing politics, whatever was required. And you could focus more and more on your kids, your teachers, your families. So we did that over that three to four year period, and we went from a, 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 a network where really you had 40 independent schools to one where all schools are part of a larger region. We take that for granted today, but it just wasn't um, part of the KIPP DNA. That was the first big shift. And then you're, you're talking, you know, when you think about what's the difference between 2010, 2015, the next five year plan, the biggest um, shift there was recognizing that as awesome as middle school could be. And it, it was it's a game changing experience. And we know how many middle schools are not great for kids. But as awesome as it was, if our mission was setting up young people to lead truly fulfilled lives, um, we would need to start earlier and stay longer. And so we started to embrace going K twelve um, and and going deeper in the communities where we were already working. So there you saw um, you know the embrace of that. And today, and we're still working at it. Um, by the end of our our, our twenty twenty plan. Uh, we'll be close to having 90% of our middle schools fed by a KIPP elementary school and 80% of our eighth graders being able to go to a KIPP high school from from an origin, again, where that just didn't exist. So that's our our, our, our second big chapter was embracing K-12. The data is clear. Like our KIPPsters who get to go to a KIPP high school graduate from college at a 20-point higher rate than our uh, KIPPsters who, who don't. And so... Um, it's hard work to build out the, the system from the middle to a K-12 and I applaud everyone at KIPP for doing it. But it's, it's essential if we're really going to set our kids up for success. Uh,
1: Richard, about, it seems like about 10 years ago, you started to get your first college completion data and you and your colleagues were um, a bit disappointed that it wasn't uh, quite as high as you had anticipated. And ever since then, you've been working really hard in a, in comprehensive ways to improve not only college going rates, but college completion rates. Maybe you could tell us about uh, both of those efforts.
2: Absolutely. So um, you're right. You have a very good memory. Uh, we, 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 in 2011, we published the KIP, first ever KIPP College Completion Report.
1: That was really an amazing report. And it I think uh, a tough one for the sector to hear about, right? The, so this was a this is a really open, honest communication about something that you guys really cared about. It,
2: it it was, and I have to give so much credit to all the people at Kip again for embracing doing this. I remember even you know uh, folks on my own board saying, "Hey, like do we like do we really want to put this out there." I, I love Kip; it's my it's my day job. But our our, our all of our I think everyone you too like full time job is. Um, Building a better world for kids uh, all across the country. And so if we weren't gonna be honest about this, we weren't actually doing our job. And so we 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 dug in because we stay in touch with our alums, we we really stay in touch with them, and we were able to figure out that, you know, uh, you know, just under you know, 35, 36 percent of them were getting a BA degree. And uh, it was it was a wake-up call. And you know, we sort of had a feeling something was like like that was going on based on conversations with our alums. But we didn't know what the exact numbers would be. Well, when we got the numbers, we put them out there and we said, hey, we got to do better at KIP." This gave fuel to going K-12, by the way, so it really reinforced the need to do that. But it also was a wake-up call that we needed to partner uh, with uh, higher ed in new ways and, and approach guidance in new ways. And um, so, we we've been on a journey, just as you said, like to figure out, okay, well, if that's the reality, how do we do better? A um, couple big learnings, and I, I tell people this story because it, it, it's helpful. Um, in 2013, then I was in Austin, Texas, and I sat with, I was sitting with a high school senior of ours there, and uh, I asked her what you know her plans were, and she said, well, she was waiting to hear, but she'd applied to Harvard and Austin Community College. And I said, "Wow!" Um, and what else? And she said, "No, I applied to those two. And I said, "Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting mix of schools." Uh, and, and you know, I you know didn't say anything to her at the moment. But when I went back uh, home, I said to our team, "Something's not working because I know the way this this works for you know upper middle class and affluent kids, and it doesn't look like this." And so we dug in. Starting in 2013, 2014, and we said, okay, how does the college application process work at KIPP? And what we realized was, only 15% of our seniors were applying to college the way you know many Americans do. Certainly, the the, where you know I live in the Upper Side of New York, and my own children, they're told you got to build a wish list of schools. It should have your schools that are your dream, you know, long shots, harder to get into, maybe one in ten. You should have schools that you're really excited about. And the odds of admission might be more like one and two, and then you should have some schools that you're likely to get into. You should be excited about all of them, but you should have a mix, and at least six across those three categories, ideally nine. So that's what we started working on with our network, and I can tell you, and it's exciting, we went from 15% of our kids applying to college with the right mix of schools in 2014 to 2018, 76% of our kids. And, uh, again, all because people in the field looked at this data and said, we're going to make this happen. Um, now, if you're a high school junior at KIPP, you're producing your wish list as we speak. I actually can see how many juniors in every high school have completed their wish list you know, right now um, because we know that they need to come back senior year and be moving forward. That can't be the beginning of their, of their research. But that wish list, uh, Tom, what's exciting too is based on all of our experience of a decade at KIPP plus all of our experience reading what's going on in the world and the data that's publicly available, when you're a KIPP junior and you sit down with your guidance counselor, they start with a wish list. Now, you can overrule it, but they would say, hey, we want to get the right mix. Here's a set of schools based on your achievements, based on your GPA, based on your interests that we think are a really good starting point. that has been a game-changing part of it. We now have 90 college partners, 90 plus. So when you go into the system as a junior, they show up in blue. These are schools that have committed um, to being successful by first-gen kids, by our kids. We have track records of success with them. So we've gone from having our kids go just to every school across the country because it's a big group of kids. Um, now, roughly a third of our high school seniors go to an official KIPP college partner every year, and we're getting that clustering effect. So we've gone from you know, recognizing that going to two college was not the same thing as through college, wake up number one, to understanding that how you apply to college really matters and you wanna apply to the right schools uh, with the right graduation rates and the right price. And our systems really just in four years been transformative in terms of our outcomes. Um, And we're still getting better at it. I mean, this is, it'll get better here.
1: And uh, you, you also have made a, an amazing commitment to supporting graduates uh, while they're in college.
2: We, we, we have. And um, what we, our matching process makes that really possible uh, because uh, the more we uh, have Kipsters uh, on college partner campuses, the more we have relationships, um, Tom, that allow you to help them navigate. So, I mean, I, I, it's obvious, but I tell this people all the time, like, when you are um, the person in your family to go to college, particularly if you go to a bigger school, and something comes up, uh, to no one's fault, but, but you're, run, you're running into a big bureaucracy. So, you're dealing with a bursar, and you're dealing with student advisement, and you're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, the folks who do your guidance on your courses, and you're trying to navigate the system. Well, if you go to a, a, a place where we have lots of relationships, you run into a, a challenge first. One of our expectations is we have a single point of contact, someone you can talk to who will help you navigate what can be a pretty overwhelming uh, system. And two, um, we know all the people in these different roles. So if you're really in a jam, we can like reach out to them and say, hey, we've got an issue. Can you help out? Versus having um, you know, a first in their family going to college to decide, you know what, this is just too much. It's not working. What everyone said is right. I'm going to go home. We've learned that. We've also learned, and, and we're not the only ones who've learned this, that often um, times our our kids uh, can end up facing challenges that other people would think, well, that can't be that big a challenge. They 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 don't have four hundred dollars for books, like that's not a big deal. Well, that's the difference for our kids and students, just like them, stick stay, between staying and going. And, and I'll say one more thing in this, because it's really important. Like we, because we stay in touch with them, like we survey our alums every year in college, say, how's it going. That's how we learned that, um, you know, here are all these amazing young people. They've done everything right. Like when America says this is what what, it, what it's all about, they get to college, um, 57% of our alums worry about running out of food, 40% of our alums regularly skip meals to save money for other purposes. Uh, a quarter of our alumni are financially responsible for another member of their family back home. And uh, 72% of our alums are not getting um, a chance at uh, career-aligned summer jobs or internships, so they're not getting to to go deeper in their field of study in terms of, of of work while they're while they're at school. So all of that learning then is now getting folded back into our guidance process and in our work with our college partners, because um, we know we can do better. KIPP can do better. Other all of us in K twelve can do better. But we also know in partnering with higher ed, these are obstacles we can overcome.
1: Those are super important uh, barriers. I'm glad that you've identified and enumerated those. Um, w- what other things could higher education institutions be doing to help your students and students um, like yours finish?
2: So uh, we think there's a number of things. I mean, one is um, we think that uh, as higher ed is adjusting to like a very um, you know, a new world where the uh, student population is fundamentally different, like we are majority-minority K-12, um, they need to understand what are they doing institutionally to make this a place where kids thrive. So here are things we've seen having summer programs before uh, for juniors in high school. It's a huge difference. Tom, we started doing this as an example uh, Colorado state. We have a partnership with, we started to get, you know, we may think, well, the trip to Denver to, 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 to Fort Collins, not a big trip. Well, it is a big trip. And it, it, it's a different world. Getting our kids on these campuses after junior year to see what it's like really really makes a difference. See uh, freshman year orientation programs can really make a difference. Making sure that that onboarding into higher ed when you're first in the family goes smoothly, making sure our um, uh, kids like ours feel like they really belong makes a huge difference uh, that that in that fall. And these are programs that we're seeing institutions adopt, and they work. Um, this this uh, micro grant. Um, initiative I was just talking about, really important. Uh, Georgia State uh, is sort of viewed as, you know, the, the mothership of that innovation. We do it at KIPP. Um, and that's basically recognizing that for for a, a child who does not have means, when you're in college, you could get to your junior year and literally three or four hundred dollars could be the difference between dropping out and staying. Three or four hundred dollars, that is because you have to go home because of the family crisis, but then you don't have money to go back. Um, three or $400, which is um, that you uh, need to get a credit um, or two credit, three credits, and you just can't come up with the money in time to do it, and then you you give up. Well, these microgrants are highly effective. Uh, we run them in a bunch of our cities. Our, our alums can access them, but we're also really encouraging higher ed. This is something you should be doing inside your institution. You should have this uh, money available, and not only is it the right thing to do by our kids, it's also proving to be um, the, the right thing to do financially for the institution Georgia State has done this and shown that it's actually a, a, a financial contributor because it's a lot smarter to keep the students you have than have to go out and enroll new ones so um, those are those are uh, uh, you know big ones that we think higher ed can do and and I'll say something else I think higher ed is figuring out getting better at um, just understanding how to make their connections to the workforce clear tighter, more easily, um, defined. So institutions that are saying to, um, you know, 18 year olds that show up, you have 160 majors to choose from. Well, I think the research is showing that's not actually the smartest thing to do. It's overwhelming choice can be overwhelming in that case. You're much better off saying, Hey, Tom, we have a, uh, two different science fields of study. We have a math field of study. We have econ, we have a, um, you know, history and you, and you, Get it down to nine or ten. Well, there people can then always specialize once they got in. But reducing the the complexity of choice is really making a difference, and then tying that ever more clearly to what are what is the market saying they want, so that young people understand by making this choice, here's what it looks like on the other end. I'm I'm, I'm bullish that all this is possible. I won't say that it's going to happen overnight. It's it's a work in process.
1: Uh, Richard, in in addition to the um these efforts to improve uh, college completion, I know that you, over the last 10 years, have made uh, some efforts to improve teaching and learning at KIPP. How would you summarize those?
2: Yeah, I I think the the biggest shifts, um, uh, first, I'd say, grew up started uh, in the world where it was about, like, let's get these super talented people, get them opening their schools across the country, and they will figure out. Um, how teaching and learning will work. Well, we learned over time, particularly as we grew. Our teachers were the ones saying to us, "Hey, I'd love to know like what I'm teaching. I'd love to know, particularly if you're you know coming in uh, you know, day one. Um, in, in the old in the old days, uh, Tom, they would come in ten years ago. And a lot of times, the answer was, "Well, you know, um, uh, Mr. Jones's books that he used are up in the closet. You can pull those down." That's what you should teach. Well, like many people, we begin to recognize identifying really high quality curriculum and um, setting up that's um, awesome for the kids, but also awesome for our teachers to actually get a chance to learn it, train it, get better at it. Um, it Did not exist 10 years ago. Now today, 80% of our uh, schools are using the same English curriculum, the same math curriculum. And if they're not, they're using another research-based curriculum. Uh, We're now driving a huge push in STEM Um, our, our schools are loving, we've, we've done a a huge engagement around amplify science That's taken off now 23 of our regions are using amplify science. Uh, we love project Lead the way we love the robotics. So you're getting common adoption of the content, which allows teachers, uh, new teachers to start with a good foundation to get training. It allows our experienced teachers to go deeper, get better. Um, and then we've been working a lot, which many others may know. Kip is not, you know, we're not the innovators in all this. We're, we're learning from others. Uh, but a ton about how do we also make sure our um, school leaders are able to focus on coaching teachers and um, to make that possible, how do we set up our schools so that there is a person uh, in that building, an awesome person who's handling all the operations so that our school leaders and assistant school leaders can be inside classrooms doing coaching, observation, and feedback all the time. Teachers can get better really quickly But only if you're in there giving them that feedback. So big thrusts have been uh, adopting high-quality curriculum, letting our teachers get uh, good training and comfort in it, tied to obviously the the assessment system that gives them feedback, lots of coaching, observation feedback. You know, we've gone from on those two fronts like that, just not being a part of KIPP even probably seven or eight years ago, to it being you know a a way of operating um, all across the network today, and now rolling in this big STEM push. So. This is very different than Kip of, you know, five or six years ago. Uh,
1: R- Richard, a few years ago, you joined the board of uh, General Assembly. I, I remember visiting the first General Assembly location in New York City. started as um, kind of a co-working space and grew into um, a, a boot camp that focused on computer science and uh, business and design. I, I'd love your reflections as a board member there on how the place has made you think differently about learning and post-secondary opportunities.
2: Yeah, so um, it was a it was a blast uh, being on the general assembly board. It was um, you know we had a great leadership team. We had a great CEO Jake Schwartz, and um, you know from from the standpoint of like what was I what what, what impact did it have on my thinking? Uh, the first big impact it had was just recognizing that. Um the just the notion that learning would, would be fixed in time was gone. So I grew up, you know, in the eighties. That really was the dominant ideology. Like you went to school for a certain part of your life and then you finished. And watching General Assembly really explode, I realized, wow, like you're always learning and that that, that was a, a reality we needed to embrace. And that was one. Two, to see um all these individuals with BA degrees; These are people who've done everything all the way through. They've got the degree and now here they are going back to learn more. Um, skills that obviously were very tied to the modern economy. That was a wake-up call to me because here we have been for the last decade so focused, understandably, on ensuring our kids to lead a fulfilled life. We had a great K-12 system. Then how do we help them get to college? Then how do we get them through college? And now I was seeing people who'd done all that and we're still realizing or desiring something more um, to either make them more competitive in the workplace or to uh, to to actually you know switch switch careers. Um, it's had a big impact for me at KIPP because watching how successful that was, um, it made me realize that when we think about fulfilled lives at KIPP, we really need to evolve beyond the idea that this is about college or non-college, um, and you know that was you know, in many ways baked into our DNA from the 1990s on. And so I've been working with the network over the last couple of years to really embrace the idea that, um, you know, when we talk about this, this is not a either or. Um, this is about uh, ensuring our, our Kipsters, our, our alums are, are really equipped to, to the, you know, leave us with a passion, purpose, and plan. For many of them, college will be the right next step, the right college with the right focus, the right major, right price. And then for other Kipsters, that may not be the next step. That's a big shift in thinking, uh, certainly for me. Yeah.
1: It, it is. It is. Hard, you know, if there's been um, Kip, and I was just at DSST in Denver last week for networks that have had, you know, basically 100% of their graduates going on to college. And that being such an integral part of the mission, and now thinking in much more nuanced ways about these emerging pathways, often pathways linked to um, career and technical okay. education, um, th- this is tricky to get it right and to remain stalwart about the best for kids and um, equitable outcomes, but to be thoughtful, as you said, about passion, purpose, and a it, plan. It, it,
2: it's it's so important. I think one thing that I, um, I say again, but I would want to say here is we could do better when it comes to our college guidance and college success. So we're not backing away. We can actually do better, and it's so important. I mean, we we moved off the. I've not been a big fan of the everyone goes to college for quite some time because we looked at the data and we 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 recognized that it was not it, it was a bit misleading, right? Um, so so we've been off that. But I think for us to recognize, um, uh, first of all, for some of our kids, it isn't the right thing right away just isn't, isn't what they want to do at 18. Two, um, what we're all seeing, right, is that as much as college matters, what you study and where you study it is becoming preeminent. So I think, you know, in five years from now, 10 years from now, if you said at Kip in, in, you know, 2000 to 2010, we were focused on, on making sure our kids could get to college. we begin to realize we need to make sure they get through college. Today, you'd expect, um, and going forward, uh, many more conversations about okay, what do you want to study? What are you passionate about? And then okay, what's the right way to go after that? So if if you like math and you you know you want to do accounting, which college is the right accounting program? I think in in in, in a decade, and you're you're way ahead of me on this stuff, Todd. But um, Kipp alums will say things like, "Well, I'm studying this. Um, uh, I'm in the medical technology program that's at Mount Sinai and uh, Lehman College." It won't be, "Oh, I go to this." you know, just I go to this institution, it's going to be what is my field of study is going to become preeminent. And for some people, that field of study will be absolutely through a a BA program. For some people, it could be through another uh, form of it. In all cases, I do think everyone's going to be recognizing that for the vast majority of young people, um, it's also going to involve work. Like the idea of work and and school just not being integrated is becoming, uh, you know, understood to be like, it's just not what's happening today. It's not realistic. It's not realistic. And I think the sooner we all understand that, the sooner uh, we're going to actually do better by our kids. So I think it's a very exciting time. I think some, you know, some people are understandably anxious. Are we going to lower the bar? The answer is nope. We're going to do better going forward than we've ever done by our kids by embracing a, a fuller picture of what's possible, including doing better on our college results.
1: Yep. now, I love the way you're thinking about that, um, and I very much appreciate the the nuance. I, I also worry about better guidance in terms of making it really personalized and really localized so that we're helping kids make really thoughtful decisions. And as more and more of them move into these work and learn ladders, how do we help kids um, in school and then once they're out of school, make good decisions about what really is a high wage, uh, high demand um, job cluster for them in the city that they choose to live. So. Uh, I appreciate your leadership
2: on that. The, the, the biggest, the, yeah, the biggest hope on that, I think, Tom, and I'm, I'm bullish, and it's like, the more, and, and this is really important federally, so I'm going to make this point, we have to keep up all the pressure on transparency of data, um, pushbacks on that, are, like, big mistake, because the more we have the data, um, we have the ability then, when we're providing guidance to a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old, say, okay, this is what, um, this is how it's playing out. If you go to this college, here's what we're, we're seeing outcomes-wise. We know that all of the graduation rates are baked into our guidance, but now you could start talking about employment with, with the right data set. And then majors, again, being more important even than most cases, where you go is going to be what you study. If that data is available and we open that up, um, the quality of decision-making is going to be far greater. And I think about what it was like in 1990. I mean, we had nothing uh, when I was uh, you know coming out of college. There's no need for that now, so I just—I I, that's a little pet peeve I have because there's been some pushback, uh, and I'm all for the 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 Feds continuing to say nope. We need more data, and not just data on completion rates, but how actual grads are doing in the workplace. Uh,
1: before you go, last question: um, You serve as the board chair at Braven, a really exciting nonprofit. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, and, and Braven really fits into uh, my own personal journey. Uh, so Braven uh, was founded by this uh, remarkable entrepreneur, Ami Eubanks-Davis, who um, ran the, the talent uh, system at Teach for America for many years after being a Teach for America uh, core member. Um, and what she saw was that there's this amazing group of young people. She calls them the mighty middle. We're talking about over a million kids who each year are going on to higher education um, and are going to this, into the system that actually serves the biggest number of kids. These are the state public systems, but not the flagships. Um, so uh, in California, San Jose State would be an example. And uh, in New Jersey, uh, Rutgers-Newark would be an example. So not, not you know, the flagship, but, but the, the, the state schools that are, have a really important mission. What she saw was all these young people would start, the first in their family to get in there, And there was no way for them to understand how they launched into a strong first job. And Braven is all about ensuring first-gen kids in these institutions um, leave and enter into the workforce in that strong first job, a job that actually is putting them on track to be uh, a meaningful wage with benefits. And what Braven's been able to show is that through a hundred-hour, roughly, experience that is a blended experience, half online, half in a coaching um, cohort with a coach and a number of undergrads, they're able to um, ensure undergrads understand what's out there, understand how to tell their story and get that strong job, understand how to get that first internship. Now, increasingly, the second internship, the data is clear, two internships is just the best, Um, and then launch into that economy at rates far beyond um, uh, what's been typically happening for young people coming out of these colleges, and actually beyond the national average, including for all the kids going, uh, you know, non-first-gen college kids. So we have figured out that in this hundred-hour experience, we can equip young people to to, to launch that um, economy with a strong first job that's going to set them up. And uh, in our first cohorts, literally half of our uh, uh, cohort grads, our fellows, Braven fellows, are already um, earning more than their family did, uh, you know, one year out of school, the, the family of which they were they were born. So it's it's a huge insight generator into what it's going to take to, to set young people up for success. We're right now in three parts of the country. We're in Newark, Chicago, and San Jose, hoping to come into New York City soon. Uh,
1: Richard Barth, it's been a treat catching up with you. Um, we really appreciate your leadership at KIPP Foundation and appreciate uh, the, the humility and transparency that uh, you, you've taken into that work and and for your commitment and all your school leaders uh, and your your focus on... Equity uh, of opportunity is um, is so exciting for us. Um, thanks for joining us on the Getting Smart podcast. Thanks, thanks for having me, and look forward to staying in
0: touch. Thanks to Richard for joining us. For more on Teach for America, check out last week's episode number two twelve. For more on productive charter school and district relationships, listen to Don Shalvi from the Gates Foundation in episode sixty five. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review the show. We'd love your feedback. And let us know what else you'd like to hear from us on the Getting Smart podcast. For today, this is Caroline signing off.